of those are on the church website as well, going back some 26 years now. And this morning, I am in Exodus chapter 40, and then next week, Lord willing, we're going to skip ahead to the book of Numbers chapter 11. But I want to read the text so that you understand where the message is coming from, because it's not my words, but those of the living Lord that really matter. Exodus chapter 40, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall place the ark of the testimony there and you shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it and you shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court and then you shall take the anointing oil and shall anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and shall consecrate it and all its furnishings and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and the altar shall be most holy. You shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and you shall anoint them even as you have anointed their father that they may minister as priests to me and their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did, according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he took the testimony and put it into the ark, and attached the poles to the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for the screen, and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. He set the arrangement of bread in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. He lighted the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned 
fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle and set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the meal offering just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar, put water in it for washing, for from it Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they entered the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court, and thus Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeyings, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeyings, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. I have uh, never met the Queen of England or even been close to, and I probably never will, but I have read that if you are scheduled to meet the Queen, you need to have a short course in proper etiquette because there are certain things that you do and don't do and say and don't say when you are in the presence of the Queen. The basic rule is not to be overly chummy and uh, familiar with her. Respect and proper formality are essential. In fact, even her son, Prince Charles, bows to his mother and calls her ma'am. Uh, in America, of course, we don't have royalty, so I think we're a little more loose in how we may greet our leaders. But the far more important question is this. How do you enter God's holy presence? Is God just your, your good buddy in the sky where you can come blasting in any way, any time you feel like it and chat? Or is there a right and wrong way to enter the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? The truth of the matter is one day every single one of us will be standing there in his presence, either, I hope, for commendation, well done, good and faithful servant, or I hope not, for condemnation, where you would hear those chilling words, depart from me, I never knew you. And the difference is going to be determined by whether in this life you have come into his holy presence through the only way that he has provided. 
The Old Testament tabernacle was designed to teach Israel how to enter God's holy presence. It's been pointed out that the Bible has a grand total of two, count them, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, two chapters on how God created the entire universe, and yet there are 50 chapters dealing with the tabernacle. Um, in fact, A.W. Pink says that there is more space devoted to the tabernacle than to any other single subject in all of God's word. I don't know how he figured that out exactly. I might argue, well, there's more devoted to prophecy or something, but that's what uh, Mr. Pink said. But I'm guessing if we were all just transparently honest, you would admit that when you get to your Bible reading and come to the tabernacle, it's time either to skim or to skip. Because you get into those chapters with all of the dimensions and all of the detail and your eyes kind of glaze over as you wade through it. Um, but you might even admit you kind of dread coming to those chapters, but they're an important part of God's Word. The late Dr. M. R. Dehan, who was the founder of the radio Bible class, they do the little Our Daily Bread devotionals, he said, there's no portion of scripture richer in meaning or more perfect in its teaching of the plan of redemption than this divinely designed building. A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, wrote, the tabernacle is the grandest of all the Old Testament types of Christ. In its wonderful furniture, priesthood, and worship, we see with a vividness that we find nowhere else the glory and grace of Jesus and the privileges of his redeemed people. Now, books, I have several, have been written on the tabernacle, so this message uh, is just going to skim the surface. But as we work through the life of Moses, I thought it would be an unforgivable glaring omission to leave out commenting on the tabernacle, which was a major part of his ministry to God's people, to Israel. Now, applying it to us, I believe the message is this, that to enter God's holy presence, you must come through the only way that he has provided if you try and approach God some other way, a way of your own choosing or devising, the, the results could be very uh, disastrous. You get into the book of Leviticus, and there's a story where Aaron's two sons, who are consecrated here in our chapter as priests, are serving there in the tabernacle, and they kind of get creative with their worship, and they offer what is called strange fire on the altar, and fire comes down from God and instantly consumes them. Uh, it says in Leviticus 10.2, they died there before the Lord. Now you may think, well, that, that was the Old Testament. Come on, we're under grace. But the Bible is very, very clear that if you try and come to God by your own way, by your own works, by some 
philosophy you come up with that doesn't line up with God's only way, which is Jesus, then someday you're going to stand before God and face condemnation, not commendation. There's one way and only one way into God's holy presence. And so what I'm talking about today, it's really, really important that you get this right because your eternal destiny hinges on it. So the main part of our text deals with God's way into his presence in the Old Testament was through the tabernacle. And the tabernacle pictures Jesus Christ, who is our way into God's presence. Back in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, God gave this command to Moses. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. And so by God's command, the tabernacle was going to be God's dwelling place among Israel. And then when you move into the New Testament, in a familiar verse in John 1.14, John says, and the Word, referring to Jesus, the eternal Word of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the significant thing to note there is that that Greek word translated dwelt literally is tabernacled. The Word became flesh and pitched his tabernacle among us, or he dwelt among us as the tabernacle of God, the very dwelling place of God. And so, while God's glory was revealed in the Old Testament tabernacle, as the end of our chapter shows, so God's glory rested on Jesus. And you'll remember that story where he invited Peter, James, and John, and they went up on the mountain and Jesus was transfigured before them, and they saw his glory along with Moses and Elijah. Um, and so Jesus reveals the glory of God. I think primarily the glory of God, though, is revealed to all of us, God's love, God's holiness, his justice, and his grace all come together at the cross of Jesus Christ, where the sinless Son of God gave himself on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And it all comes there as the Lamb of God there opens the way into God's presence for all who will come through him. It says in the book of Matthew that when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that signified the way into the Holy of Holies is now open through the cross, through Jesus and what he did on the cross. And so the Old Testament tabernacle pictured Jesus and his sacrificial death as the only way that we can enter God's holy presence. And in fact, this is where God is taking all of history because you get to the very end of the Bible and in Revelation 21, 1 through 3, the Apostle John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, notice, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. As you think about it, this detailed description that we have in the book of Exodus and all of the Old Testament about the tabernacle and the fact that it's such an amazingly accurate type of the person of Jesus Christ, I believe, is proof of the inspiration of Scripture. In other words, it couldn't have been coincidental that just Jesus happened to fit all of these things that the tabernacle says would be true of him. And it was true of him. And it's also proof that Jesus is God's Messiah, the Savior that he sent for our salvation. And so I'll mention some of the ways that the tabernacle portrays Jesus as we walk through it in just a moment. But the first thing to note is that God ordained every detail of the tabernacle. I didn't read Exodus 39, but maybe you picked it up in Exodus 40 as I read it, that over and over, as it's describing the construction of the tabernacle and the priestly garments and all of that, there is the phrase, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Did you catch that as I read? It's, I counted 17 times in Exodus 39 and 40. Just as the Lord commanded Moses. And then seven times in the Bible, we are told that Moses made the tabernacle after the pattern that was shown him on the mountain. And so, in other words, the, the tabernacle uh, wasn't Moses' invention. You know, he got a brilliant idea. Hey, I know, let's build this thing. Uh, he wasn't the architect, God was. And again, it just shows the detailed inspiration of Scripture. And it gives us, as the quotes I mentioned earlier say, a portrait of the Savior who would provide the way for all people to come into God's holy presence through the blood of Jesus. So I want to take you on a little guided tour here of the tabernacle as it's set up in Exodus 40. It's called the Tent of Meeting because... That's where God met with his people, and it was first set up one year to the day from when Israel came out of Egypt, and for the next 39 years, it's going to be set up and taken down every time that Israel breaks camp as they're moving through the wilderness toward the promised land. Uh, I count at least 31 different times this thing would be set up and taken down. Now, have you ever gone camping with little kids? You know what a hassle it is. Uh, tent camping, not RV. That doesn't count as camping. I'm talking about the real thing, tent camping, where you got to set up the tent, which almost ruined our marriage a few times as the thing <laughs> is about to fall down. And then, you know, you get it all set up and imagine, oh, man, we got to take it down and move. That cloud is moving. And there you go. So this thing would have been far more complicated than our family tent. 
the, the main building where the cloud rests there measured 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. It was covered by three layers of animal skins. And <clears throat> just want to walk you through the various parts of it as given in Exodus 40. And there's far, far more detail back in the earlier chapters of Exodus that we can't cover. But right in the middle of the back part of that structure in the Holy of Holies um, was the ark. And the ark was made of wood, and it was covered with gold, and that represents Christ's humanity and his deity. It measured four feet by about two feet high by two feet wide with golden rings there on the side that they could carry it without actually touching the ark. Um, <clears throat> inside of the ark were the Ten Commandments. It's called the, the testimony here in our chapter. There was a jar of manna, and then later in Israel's history, they put in there Aaron's rod that budded. I'm not sure. It must have been a short rod, or uh, I don't know how they got the thing in there. Um, but anyway, the Ten Commandments, of course, represent God's holy law. And being in there... There was something between that and the cloud hovering over, namely the mercy seat, which I'll mention in a moment. But it shows us that God's uh, Christ's atoning blood is between God's law that condemns us and God's holy presence. Thankfully, the blood atones for our sin. Uh, the jar of manna reminded Israel of how God had sustained them in the wilderness for all those years, just as Christ sustains us daily. Um, Aaron's rod that budded uh, pictured Jesus as God's chosen high priest, the one who alone has life in him. The top of the ark was a pure gold sheet called the mercy seat that was placed there, and that's where once a year the high priest would come in there with the blood of the atoning sacrifice and sprinkle it on that mercy seat to atone for Israel's sins. You've got these two cherubim, angel-type figures, hovering over the ark. Their faces are down toward the mercy seat. Their wings are touching up above. And in the Holy of Holies there, where the ark was housed, it was a perfect cube, about 15 by 15 by 15, but um, as you know, the new Jerusalem will be a perfect cube as well, <clears throat> symbolic of that. The only light inside the Holy of Holies came from the Shekinah. The Shekinah was the very glory of God shining forth in there. And <clears throat> as I'll say in a moment, I'll quote the verse, but when we come to the new Jerusalem, the only light is the glory of God. Um, there was a blue, purple, and scarlet veil made of woven linen. <clears throat> it had cherubim woven on it, and it separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Uh, tradition says that it was about a handbreadth thick, so about four inches thick. It must have weighed a ton to get that thing erected up there. Um, and so it was truly miraculous when 
Jesus died and a four-inch thick veil was ripped from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, from top to bottom. That was a God thing saying that the way is open. And only the high priest and only once a year uh, could go beyond that veil to make atonement for the people. And I've heard that they tied a rope on his leg and had bells on his uh, robes so that if the bells stopped and they figured he just died in there, nobody else would die going to rescue him, they could just pull him out. Um, So it was a pretty serious thing to go in there. The second piece of furniture we come to is the table of showbread. And uh, now we've moved out of the Holy of Holies, out into the holy place. And it was placed on the north side of that holy place. It's about three feet long and about uh, 18 inches wide and 27 inches high. Again, it was made of acacia wood covered with uh, pure gold and gold rings attached for carrying it. And on top of the table, the priest would place 12 loaves of bread, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and every week they would replace them with fresh uh, bread. And there were also some vessels that were set on there for uh, the drink offerings that were um, made, drink offerings of wine. And so the table itself, as with the ark, made of wood covered with gold, again pictures Jesus in his humanity and his uh, perfect undiminished deity. The bread was called the bread of the presence because it represented the presence of God again. And along with the wine, I believe it pictured Jesus as the bread of life, uh, who has life in himself. He offers himself and says that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. And we commemorate that in the Lord's Supper, of course. Uh, The bread of the presence reminds us of Matthew 1.23 where the angel tells Joseph, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Jesus is God present with us, and he provides spiritual food and sustenance to all who feed on him. The third item was the golden lampstand, and the lampstand was made of about one talent of pure gold. That would be about 75 pounds of gold, quite heavy. Um, It was put in the holy place on the south side opposite the table of showbread, And uh, it has the one main central stem, and then on each side, three stems uh, coming out from it. The pure gold points again to Jesus and his pure deity, and he is the one and the only one who can reveal the Father to us because he was with the Father from all eternity. The seven lambs, seven is a perfect number, picture Jesus as the perfect revelation of the Father to us, and the lampstand, again, was the only light in that holy place. Um, That means that Jesus is the only source of spiritual knowledge and wisdom to us. Anything else is false and phony. 
The lamps burned with pure olive oil, picturing the Holy Spirit. And as we know, Jesus did everything in his earthly ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, depending on him. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit now reveals to us the wisdom of God in Christ, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 2. Jesus proclaimed in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Think about it. No human could make that claim unless he were also God. If I said that, you'd say, this guy is time for more than retirement. Put him away somewhere. You know, you, you just can't make a claim like that unless you are God in human flesh. And then, as I said, in the New Jerusalem, we read this in Revelation 21:23, says the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, notice, and its lamp is the Lamb. So Jesus will be the light for us throughout eternity in that heavenly city. The fourth piece of furniture is the altar of incense, and uh, it was three feet long and 18 inches wide and 24 inches high. It had gold rings again to carry it. It was made again of acacia wood covered with gold, so picturing Christ in his humanity and deity. And it was put just outside the veil there before you went into the Holy of Holies. And every morning when Aaron went in to trim the lamps, he was to offer fragrant incense on that altar. And then once a year when he uh, took the sin offering to go into the Holy of Holies, he would sprinkle that altar of incense with the blood. Uh, the altar and the burning incense picture again Jesus Christ as our high priest. He's now at the Father's right hand praying for us. And also, <clears throat> since we are believer priests, the incense represents the prayers of the saints, as it says in a couple of places in the book of Revelation. The fifth item was the altar of burnt offering, and now we're moving out of the tabernacle tent there and out into the courtyard. And the uh, altar was the first thing you would come to as you went through the opening, the entrance into the courtyard. Uh, and it was made of wood covered with bronze. Bronze is in the Bible usually a symbol of judgment. And this was seven feet by seven feet by about four and a half feet high. There were horns on the corner of it. Um, and it was the only way into God's presence was to go by the altar to bring your sacrifices. And um, <clears throat> God ordained blood sacrifices for Israel because he explains the life of the flesh is in the blood. And we, because we have sinned, must die. And so God provided a substitute, a blood sacrifice, to atone for the sins of Israel. And all of those sacrifices pointed ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God's perfect and final sacrifice for our sins. And especially you can read Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 and learn about that. But thank God now there is no need for further animal sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled them. The sixth item, and you can see it between the altar and the uh, tabernacle there, was the laver. The laver, or you could call it a basin for washing, it was made out of bronze from the mirrors of the women who served at the tent. They all gave their bronze mirror, and they were beaten and hammered and uh, heated and molded into this laver. The priests had to wash their hands and their feet at this laver before they entered the holy place and also before they offered up offerings on the burnt, uh, burnt offerings on the altar. And of course, that pictures Jesus as the one who cleanses us from all our sins by the washing of water with the word, as Ephesians 5 says, and through his spirit, who is often pictured as water in the Bible. But the good news is this, through faith in Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven as we come to him and as we confess our sins to him. Uh, the, the final thing to mention is the court itself, and that's the outer uh, layer there around it. It was formed by linen curtains that were hung between pillars, and it measures about 150 feet long by 75 feet wide, with, um, and, and it's separating God's presence from the camp. Once you're inside there, you're coming near the presence of God. Uh, thankfully, there's an entrance, and it uh, shows that we can enter God's presence through the proper sacrifice. Now, uh, all Israelites could come through the entrance, but they had to stop at the altar. Only the priests could go on in. But the tabernacle was located in the center of Israel's camp, and um, the layout of the tribes around the camp were such that the tribe of Judah was near the entrance, and that would suggest that the Messiah, Jesus, came from the tribe of Judah, which, as you know, was the family, the house and lineage of David. Um, but its centrality showed Christ should be central to his people at all times. Wherever we are, Jesus is always at the middle, at the center. So God ordained every detail of this, and you've kind of had a quick guided tour. And then the dedication, the table is consecrated in verses 9 through 11 of Exodus 40. It was anointed with the anointing oil, and that symbolized, I believe, the Father's anointing Jesus with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And in the same way, if you've trusted in Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit to dwell within you, and that sets you apart unto God. That's what the idea of consecration means. So God's way then into his presence was through this tabernacle, uh, which pictures Jesus Christ, who is our true tabernacle, but also God's way into his presence was through these consecrated priests 
And again, that's now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As I said, anybody in Israel could come into the courtyard to bring a sacrifice, but unless you were a priest, that's where you had to turn around. You could go no further. Uh, there were no guided tours. You know, the, the Mormon church has guided tours of their temple. Well, you couldn't get a guided tour of the tabernacle. Sorry. Uh, it was only for the priest who could go in there. And the priest could go in the holy place, but only the high priest and only once a year could venture beyond the veil <clears throat> into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement after first offering a sacrifice for his own sins then he took the sacrifice in there for the sins of the people. But we read in the New Testament that when Jesus died, the way into God's presence was opened for all who will come through him by faith in his shed blood. And the amazing thing is now if you're a believer, you are a believer priest with access not just to the courtyard and not just to the holy place, but even into the very holy of holies. I don't think we understand what a, an amazing privilege that is. But just as these Old Testament priests had to be anointed and cleansed before they entered the tabernacle, so we only can enter that holy place when we are fully yielded to God, when we've confessed all of our sins, because we can't go in there if we're cognizant of any sin, we have to be right with him through faith in Christ to enter his presence. And then finally, <clears throat> God's glory through the cloud now fills uh, the tabernacle, and that is now fulfilled through the Holy Spirit. And through this, through God filling the tabernacle with his glory, he was showing his approval of the finished tabernacle. Now this only happened the first time uh, in this intense way. The cloud covers it and God's glory fills the tabernacle to such an extent even Moses can't go in there. He has to stay outside. He bows down with everyone else and just worships God and everyone by the cloud coming on the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord being shown knew this wasn't Moses' genius that built this thing. This is God's plan. God is dwelling now with us, his people. And so it was an amazing thing. Uh, the cloud that settled here on the ta tabernacle and it followed the Israel from here on out uh, signified three things. First of all, the cloud was a visible reminder of God's presence with his people. Um, they could see it during the day. There's the cloud. At nighttime, it turned into a pillar of fire that would give illumination and heat from the desert cold out there. Uh, and so it protected Israel. And it showed two aspects of God that we need to keep in mind. On the one hand... It showed his transcendence. That refers to his otherness. He is not like us. He is distinct from us. He is holy. And so there was that sense of God's transcendence. Uh, and then it showed God's imminence. But he is pleased to dwell with us. 
he is with us. And uh, when Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended to the Father, he told the disciples, I'm not going to leave you orphans, but I'm going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit will be with you. And that is a picture again of the cloud that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And now every believer has the Spirit of God dwelling in him or her. The second thing the cloud represented was God's protection over Israel. The cloud shielded them from the desert heat during the day, and at night it provided warmth and illumination. You remember earlier in Exodus, Pharaoh's army is pursuing Israel, who are trapped at the Red Sea, and it says the cloud moved around behind them, and it served as darkness toward the Egyptians, but light for Israel. And so, again, a picture of God protecting his people. And the Spirit's presence with us assures us no one can harm us unless it is the will of God. And it is the will of God that some of his people die as martyrs, as Caleb prayed earlier. But um, God doesn't abandon us at that time. He is with us, and the Spirit of God will usher us into his presence forever. And then, thirdly, the cloud provided God's guidance of Israel through the wilderness. And when the cloud moved, Israel moved. When the cloud stayed still, Israel stayed still. And maybe at first you think, wow, I wish God would guide me like that, you know? I'd like to know his will that clearly. But uh, James Boyce humorously uh, mentions, I'm not sure you would have liked that. You know, I mean, again, picture camping, and you just get your tent set up. Oh, man, the cloud's moving. So you take everything down and pack it away, and you start out, and it gets to be dinner time, and you're thinking, I hope the cloud stops. I'm hungry, and I want to stay here for the night. Oh, the cloud keeps moving. So you keep moving with the cloud. Finally, it stops. Well, this time you're going to outsmart it, so you say, we're just going to do the bare minimum. Everybody roll out your bread roll or your bedroll. We're not going to set up the tent. And the cloud stays. And it stays. And it stays for days. And it stays for weeks. So finally, Dad says, all right, all right, let's set up the tent. So you set up the tent, and guess what? There's the cloud moving again. And you're going again. So, you know, you, you might not have liked following this frustrating cloud. Now, God doesn't guide us through a cloud, but his Holy Spirit lives within us, and he's given us his word, and his word shows us how we are to live. And most of what we need to know, I, I grant there are some times where the details aren't filled in, but the moral will of God for us, how we are to live our lives, is in the word of God and the Spirit of God illumines the Word to us so that we understand it. But the important thing is, when he says go, I need to go. And when he says stay, I need to stay. We need to be sensitive to the Lord and to his uh, guidance through the Word and through the Spirit. Now, I realize there may be somebody here this morning, and maybe honestly you don't even like the thought of coming into God's holy presence. It's kind of intimidating. 
And as you think about it, you realize, I got a pile of sin in my heart. And God knows that. I don't think I want to get any closer, thank you. But as I said at the beginning, someday you'll be there. Just read on the front page of the paper that my friend Randy Wilson, who is the editor of the Daily Sun, died unexpectedly yesterday, age 65. And he was healthy, fit. He was out riding his mountain bike. And he died. We don't know when that time will be. But one day, all of us, either through death or the second coming of Jesus, will be in God's presence. And right now, God gives you the invitation, come. I've provided the way. You can see the picture in the tabernacle, but that's just a picture. The real deal is in the New Testament. God tabernacling among us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so right now, I invite you, come to Jesus through faith in him. And then, on that day, you'll be welcomed into his presence. If you're a believer in Christ, Jesus is both our tabernacle where we meet God. He's our high priest, but we have the privilege of drawing near to him. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, invites us into his presence in this way. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, here's the bottom line, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you that <clears throat> you designed this magnificent structure in the Old Testament to point ahead to the even more magnificent person who would come and bear our sin so that we might now come into your holy presence. I ask, Lord, if any are here and they've never trusted in Jesus as the only way to you, that they would do so today. Don't let them rest. Just make them uneasy, convict them of sin, and point them to Jesus as the sacrifice for sinners. And Father, as your children, we struggle sometimes as we wander in the wilderness, but I pray that we too would draw near through the blood of Jesus and find grace to help in all our need. We ask in his name. Amen.